Welcome, 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 Housers, to another episode of On the Way Home. I'm your, uh, I am your host, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door, and Blue Door is an organization uh, that I'm so pleased and proud to be a part of in York, Peel, and Durham regions that has been operating for 42 years now, supporting our most vulnerable in the areas of housing, health, and employment, and much, much more. To see the great work we're doing at Blue Door, simply go to bluedoor.ca, check us out. Uh, we'd love to get you involved. As well, we do this in partnership with the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. They're doing incredible work uh, around national advocacy, supporting those experiencing homelessness. They do all sorts of training. If you want to become a Built for Zero community, and trust me, you do, uh, and much, much more, check them out at caeh.ca. See all the wonderful work they're doing. Listen, On the Way Home podcast, this is for you. Uh, and so we want to hear from you. And if you have an idea around uh, guests that should be on the show, or if you're saying, I've got a great idea uh, around um, a solution to some of the challenges we face in uh, ending homelessness and houselessness, we'd love to hear from you. Right, simply write to me, michael.b at bluedor.ca. Uh, let me know what you'd like to come on to talk about, or if you want to link us to someone who you think would make amazing guests, maybe someone uh, in a different part of the world is doing incredible work that we could share across Canada. And that's the whole idea of this podcast is to share and say, here's some wonderful stuff that's happening, whether it be a research project, whether it be a new housing project, whether uh, it's just something, it's uh, someone with lived experience that really wants to go on to share their story so we can learn from them. We learn so much from lived experts. Anything like that, again, reach out to me at michael.b at bluedoor.ca. We would love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback on the show as well. Well, today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Melanie Doucette. I talked about lived experience. Uh, not only uh, is she brilliant and you know she has her PhD um, in social work, but you know Dr. Doucette came through the system. She's a lived expert um, and, and, you know, around aging out of care and being in care. And she brings that lens to it and she's really focused. We talk about how important it is when you're writing policy and putting together policy to have people that have lived through it at the table. We often hear the phrase, uh, nothing for us without us. And that applies. If you really want to know what to do, talk to the people that have lived it, uh, like Dr. Doucette. And so she, we also talk about this work she's doing now. And she wants, she's really through the work she's doing, uh, through uh, leading the equitable transitions to adulthood and the Just Pandemic Recovery for Youth Care Project, uh, alongside the National Council of Youth and Care Advocates. Through that work, they're really setting the bar of uh, what should you know what should be in place for youth transitioning out of care to be successful. We talk how that came to be, what it's involved in, who the partners are. We talk about hopes for the future, what needs to happen next. Uh, it, it's a fascinating conversation. Listen, I worked and continue to work with uh, youth experiencing homelessness, as so many have aged out of care into homelessness. And that's just not right. I mean, they you think about that journey, what they've been through already. Um, not a fair process and we need to do better and offer better supports for uh, all youth aging under care to be successful, uh, just like any other youth moving forward. It's a great conversation. Dr. Doucette is brilliant. I uh, love talking with her and I've invited her back uh, as she progresses on with the project. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Let's go to that conversation. Very excited for our guest today. Uh, we have Dr. Doucette with us, Dr. Melanie Doucette. Melanie, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. 
Listen, Melody is so good. Dr. Anderson is so good that this is the second time she's joined us due to uh, <laughs> errors on our end. So we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. But what this does mean is that, you know, you, you kind of got a, a run through of the podcast already. So no pressure uh, with this question. And that is, what does home mean to you? Um, yeah, home for me, it's uh, more community and support network, family, chosen family, uh, people in your life than a roof over your head. Um, I think that stems from um, displacement in my childhood where I moved around a lot. I was a foster kid all throughout my teenage years. I moved around, I think, six times in four years while I was in care. And that kind of followed me in my early adulthood years. It was a while before like, I was able to achieve housing stability. Um, and it was really the people in my life at the time, and some of these people are still in my life today, um, that kept me stable emotionally and mentally and kept me off the streets, to be quite honest with you. I always had a, a warm you know, place to, to crash, a couch to crash on. Uh, some of my friends would take me home with them for the holidays because I, I couldn't you know, I'd go home and celebrate the holidays with my family. So I had really good people in my life um, that deeply cared about me and believed in me. And that makes a hell of a difference. And so I would say that's how I felt at home and I continue to feel at home. I, I love it. It's about the people. And, and you, you touched on this, but you're both an expert in your field. Mm -hmm. The PhD and what we call a lived expert, because this lived experience, not like, I think this is what should happen. It's, I went through this. Can you, as much as you're comfortable, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into the work you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, my experience is dated in a way, because I, I exited care well over 20 years ago, a little bit more. Um, and so some of the things that I went through have changed, but some things haven't, some things have not changed in 20 years. Um, and that is really what drives the work that I do is to really be pushing for that change to happen quickly because <laughs> youth in care can't afford to wait. Um, I would say my lived experience definitely is the core of um, my passion for this work. Um, I didn't come into contact with another person like me from care until my late 20s, um, I would say, when um, the New Brunswick Youth and Care Network got established. That was like 2010. Um, and that was my first time experiencing a context where I could tell my story and make a difference um, and not really be a victim forever <laughs> um, and really take back the power that was taken away from me when I was a kid. Um, so getting involved with the network and getting to do advocacy um, with my, my story and my lived experiences in front of politicians, uh, in front of ministers, in front of the child and youth advocate, it really, really sparked something in me. Um, we had uh, in 2012, the very first New Brunswick Youth and Care hearings, which were modeled after the Ontario um, Youth and Care hearings. We uh, had a full day at the New Brunswick legislature where six of us from the network presented our stories to the premier and the minister. There was other uh, ministers there, um, the child and youth advocate. 
And then at the end of the day, we provided concrete recommendations for change. Um, and that day was so emotional in a good way um, where we saw you know, the light in the politicians' eyes where they started to realize that we're human um, and that we could have been their children. You know, like it just made us more human in their eyes. And um, I think telling stories is so powerful in that sense where we're not just statistics, we're not just case numbers, we're people um, and people with dreams and hopes and fears and needs. Um, and so that really propelled me to want to do more of that. Um, and so I think that was kind of the beginning of me wanting to pursue a PhD, um, where I was like, how can I do that as a career where I'm providing a platform for people like me, um, people who've lived through the system are younger than me, um, and give them that platform to be able to turn their lives and their stories into something really powerful for change. Um, so yeah, that's really what uh, sparked my desire to pursue a PhD, um, which I, I moved to Montreal to do my uh, PhD at the McGill School of Social Work in 2013. Um, and I did, uh, for my doctoral project, I did a community-based uh, photo voice project. So using photography um, as a research tool, and I did it with eight youth um, in the greater Vancouver area who had exited care um, in recent years. Um, and we looked at the relationships that matter to young people from care um, and how they can be supported in establishing those and sustaining them in a healthy way over the course of their lives. And then we did at the end of the uh, 12 week project, we did a photo exhibit in a community gallery and we invited the media, politicians, uh, child abuse advocate. There was over 100 people that showed up. It was really powerful. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just love doing that kind of work. It just excites me. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, Complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. It's such a, I think it gives uh, so many people so much hope, right? I mean, you did not take a traditional path of having for many people who have this you know, support a family through education to client. And can you listen, uh, listeners know how many uh, that we've had on the show to get a PhD. I mean, it's a, I mean, it is a, a long journey. It is hard, hard work. You did that with, without a lot of the traditional supports. How important is it when we're creating policy to have voices like yours or the voices of lived experts and those with lived experience at the table? it's vital I, I in my opinion a policy shouldn't be implemented without it like because then you're missing a whole like part of the picture um and the people who the policy impacts should be involved in the creation of the policy to me that just is like complete common sense um but it's not traditionally part of the process so i think that needs to change um 
I do think people who have lived through the systems know best in terms of what needs change in a system. Um, so I'm trying to bring that to the table um, more often, um, especially with governments um, and policy decision makers. Um, and I think people are starting to realize that um, this is the way to go um, because in the past, it hasn't been done and things haven't worked. So it's like, how could we, you know, do things that we know will actually impact and work um, and are based from a lived uh, expert lens. I love it. And well said. Now you're working on a project right now. What can you tell me about the equitable transitions to adulthood and a just pandemic recovery for youth and care project? How did it come about? What its goal or what is its goal? Yeah, so this was uh, pretty much almost immediately after I uh, finished my PhD. Um, I was hired by the Child Welfare League of Canada um, to do a systematic review of all the gray literature, is what we call it. So um, reports and uh, papers that weren't published in academic journals that came out in Canada since the late 80s about uh, aging out of care issues. Um, and so I did a compilation and there was over 75 reports at the time. Um, there's probably a lot more. And now this was released um, in uh, 2021, uh, this review. And with over 475 recommendations related to aging out of care were made uh, throughout these reports. And then I highlighted the most recurring ones. So we picked the top five recurring ones. And one of the recurring ones was a lack of national standards on exits from care. Uh, supports. Um, so this is something that we decided we wanted to focus on. So um, there's a group of us that convened, um, thanks to the Child Welfare League of Canada, and also Away Home Canada was pivotal in making this happen. So uh, people like myself, uh, academics with lived experience, advocates with lived experience, as well as um, directors and coordinators of youth and care networks from across the country, we convened together um, to start discussing, um, you know, the, the concerns that we have uh, related to uh, youth aging out of care, but also the pandemic, um, which was unprecedented. unprecedented. Um, we were really concerned um, that youth were having to age out as usual in a very unusual and dangerous time. Um, and governments were making all these, you know, public health announcements and having people isolate and, um, you know, CERB was being announced and all these things. And youth in care were still expected to age out as usual. We were like, this makes absolutely no sense. Um, where are they gonna go? Um, a lot of them end up on the street and that puts them even more at risk. We didn't have a vaccine at that time. And so we were really concerned. And so we mobilized um, as a council um, as a national council to advocate for moratoriums on aging out of care during the pandemic. And this was very beginning of the pandemic, March, 2020, um, that we decided to mobilize to do that. Um, and we were successful in getting quite a few provinces and territories to issue moratoriums or emergency measures. Um, so once we were successful in that, um, uh, we were like, okay, what happens when those expire? What happens when the pandemic ends? We didn't know when it was gonna end at the time, um, but we were like, what happens then? Um, Cause emergency measures and moratoriums are temporary. Um, and do we return back to the way things were before the pandemic? Because we know that's not working. Um, and the systematic review that I was doing was showcasing that, that 
you know, there had been multiple reports, many, many recommendations, but nothing concrete had really happened. Um, and so we wanted to focus on longer term solutions um, so that we could have meaningful systemic change happen uh, for transitions to adulthood. Um, and so that's really, really where that all started. And we decided to focus on national standards because that was one of the recurring recommendations that was coming out of all these reports. Um, and so I looked at the literature um, as an academic who just finished her PhD on aging out of care issues. I wrote a gigantic literature review chapter and my thesis on it. Um, so we looked at the literature um, and we came up with the eight transition to adulthood pillars um, that you see outlined in the equitable standards report. And from there, we held um, validation sessions across the country through our national council members with youth who were either still in care at the time or had recently exited care. And they added um, to the framework. So they added all the key supports under the pillars that um, they felt that they needed to thrive. So not just, you know, barely surviving, um, really it's about creating conditions where young people from care are um, able to experience similar outcomes to their peers who aren't in care. So that's really about, you know, elevating the bar uh, much, much higher. Actually, there is no bar, so it's setting a bar and then over time, you know, elevating it to a point where we are providing equitable supports to young people from care where you know every young person that exits care gets to obtain a high school diploma equivalent that's currently not the case it's like less than 50 percent um, that actually graduate high school compared to over 90 percent of their peers in the general population so we need to really elevate um, young people from care to that same status and to in order to do that we have to provide much more supports um, and continuous care beyond the age of majority. And that's what we're advocating for. I mean, when you're battling through trauma, uh, precarious housing, you know, you're not surrounded by, you know, the people that are supposed to love you most in this world who have not, uh, and try battling through all that. And then, you know, compete at the same level. You need those support. Absolutely. Right. Like those supports have to be there. You know, I, I don't think much surprises you. Uh, as a lift expert too, but going through this, were there any surprises as you did the research? Anything that jumped out that you thought, oh, I didn't think it would? Well, I just think it, it was surprising to me that, you know, there'd been so many reports coming out since the late 80s, but nothing really concrete coming to fruition. It's like all these reports just kind of collecting dust somewhere. Um, and to me that I felt that was very frustrating. It's like people have been, you know, saying the same thing over and over again for, you know, well over two decades. How do we make it so that it's undeniable and also actionable. So let's present solutions. Let's not suggest anymore. <laughs> you know, let's present solutions and concrete actions um, in a step-by-step -step manner um, that can be taken by any key stakeholder who works with young people in and from care, whether it's a government or a community organization or a university, a college that really brings people um, to the table and gets them to self-assess and self-reflect from a lived experience lens. And so that's really what uh, the Equitable Standards is all about. It's about presenting solutions and a roadmap to, to significant and meaningful systemic change from a lived experience centered lens. 
Um, so really about meeting young people where they're at instead of young people meeting systems where they're at, which is tends to be the case right now. Beautiful. So what are next steps? We got this here. I couldn't agree more in the sense that we do so many reports and we pull this out, we put people through the trauma of getting their information, whatever, and then we put it on the shelf and then we do it again another couple of years later, right? Like, and not to, it's not the same, but we had in York region, we had one big research thing that, that showed that 2S LGBTQ plus youth do not feel safe in the emergency housing that we had, right? Uh, you know, so that went perfect. Good to know. And then Dr. Alex Abramovich came and did another research piece, and and, I, and it told us more and more in depth. That I thought, what, so if we're, what is the purpose? So Blue Door, we just said enough's enough. We'll figure it out. Set up the housing, right? Like, how many reports do we need before it's actionable? To your words. So, what are next steps to make this actual? What are you hoping for? What, what's going to happen? Yeah. So we're currently um, piloting um, the Equitable Standards Evaluation Model. So it, that was released in the fall of 2022. Um, and it's basically a, a Likert scale fidelity um, assessment to the equitable standards um, and really entails a baseline assessment from any organization or ministry that works with young people in and from care to assess where they're currently at in their uh, supports and policies and programs and meeting the equitable standards and where do they need to go in order to get there. Um, so we're currently piloting this evaluation model um, over uh, 2023, 2024. We have 13 pilot partners from across the country um, who are committed to doing this. Uh, we have three government ministries included in that. We have uh, the Department of Social Development in New Brunswick, uh, the Department of Social Development and Seniors in PEI, and uh, the Ministry um, of um, Family and Child Services in the Northwest Territories. So we have three government ministries who are doing it, and then uh, 10 uh, community-based organizations from uh, BC, Manitoba, Ontario, uh, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, and Northwest Territories. Um, so what we're doing uh, throughout the course of uh, this year is meeting with our pilot partners, um, making sure that they're doing the process um, as intended and providing support to them and also gathering their feedback on how we can improve the evaluation model, make it accessible, um, easy to complete. And our goal uh, for next year and 2025 um, until I think about 2027, uh, we're going to uh, submit a proposal for funding to digitize uh, the evaluation model once it's been finalized and have it on an online platform and then do a call uh, to action, uh, a national call to action to get more key stakeholders on board and more ministries on board across the country. A, a lot of work ahead, important work moving forward. Uh, if people want to get involved, if they want to find out more, if they want to support or they're just interested or they want to see the research, where can they go? Um, we're on the Child Welfare League of Canada's website right now. I will provide a link tree that we have um, that has all the links to all the resources for this project. Um, we have a really cool 16-minute uh, video that we've prepared that really provides a good um, overview of who we are as the National Council, what the equitable standards is, going through each pillar, what the purpose of the evaluation model is. So that will also be uh, in the link tree as well as the reports and the evaluation model, our webpage, all of that. Incredible, Melanie. 
Dr. Dusan, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. You're really living that that uh, the motto of nothing for us without us, that inclusive, you know, um, and, and you, you bring a different lens to this research, to this work. It's so appreciated, so needed. Uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, over the years uh, in the area of youth experiencing homelessness and, and, you know, all the time we saw what played into a youth exiting care. Um, and I think, like, I forget what the percentages were, but it was so high. Um, and so I saw the direct need for this and, the, and, and you, you know, the fact that you're setting the bar and setting that bar high uh, and, and holding people accountable is incredible and it's going to be impactful. So thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Uh, so you're always welcome back. We'd love to, you to come back in the future with updates on how it's going or if there's a call out or you need partners, you need people to participate or push it forward. You can count us count on us at uh, On The Way Home for sure. Thank you so awesome. much. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.